raise a family, that they have some of the same opportunities that me and my wife. You agreed that they are, we need to see them as a terrorist organization. On a private cloud server, yes or no? To love country, to love God, and to try to do the right thing. Worked for the nation and the interests of the people. Welcome back to the Fresh Freedom Podcast. As you know, this is a podcast with the freedom-loving freshman members of the House of Representatives, where we provide you with a behind-the-scenes look at what's happening in Congress. I'm joined by my fellow conservative freshman members of Congress, Josh Burkeen from Oklahoma, Eli Crane from Arizona, Keith Self from Texas, and our special guest today is Congressman Bob Good from Virginia. As you know, Bob is a member of the Freedom Caucus. He came to Congress in 2020, and from the very beginning, he has made a name for himself as a fighter. Bob, thank you for being a fighter, and thanks for coming on Fresh Freedom. Great to be with you guys. I feel privileged to be included with the freshman freedom fighters. So we'll start off with a softball question. We're ju we just got back from Thanksgiving. Uh, the big question of the day is, did you fry a turkey? Did you smoke a turkey? Did you bake a turkey? I ate a lot of turkey, and I showed up when dinner was called. Now, we went to my mom's house for Thanksgiving. Uh, I have three brothers, and two of my brothers were with me and their families, big family at my mom's house uh, in Virginia. Did anybody shoot a turkey? That'd be way cool. That Just would be way shot. cool. No. They had I a do good, during they had a good spring, Thanksgiving. Did you In spring that? turkey season. I they had a good Thanksgiving. They have a good one. No, a good one. Oh, that, I like it. Just want to make sure we plug that. <laughs> Not a great one, but a good Josh one. Josh is on his toes. I'm, I'm stepping tonight. <laughs> okay, so your background before you came, before you ran for office, kind of give us an idea like where, where you're from, what your background is. I know you worked at Liberty University. I think you attended Liberty as well. Yeah, I grew up in a lower income family in central Virginia in the Lynchburg area and uh, had to work all of my life for as long as I can remember. Family was on food stamps. Uh, I was on free lunch at school back when everybody wasn't on free lunch at school. And some people joke, and some people say, hey, we were so poor and we didn't know. We certainly knew we were poor. Uh, but uh, I, my brothers and I became wrestlers when we were kids. And uh, football was what I loved, but wrestling is what I could do. And I needed to... Uh, <laughs> get a scholarship to college. So I uh, got a partial wrestling scholarship to Liberty University. Oh, wow. And wrestled and worked my way through school. Was a finance major. Met my wife, Tracy, there, who uh, cheered at Liberty. And we graduated together uh, 35 years ago in 1988. And I went to work for a division of Citigroup uh, and worked in their lending division down in okay. Virginia Beach, Norfolk area, Wilmington, Delaware, and Atlanta. Did that for 15 years, was a district manager, and then had a chance to come back to Liberty University 18 years ago and was one of the senior associate athletic directors for development or fundraising. So I was the chief fundraiser for the athletics department, did that for 15 years before uh, quitting to run for Congress. Wow, Liberty, um, outside of Oklahoma State University, it is the uh, one college that I've advocated to my kids. Uh, so uh, it held it in high regard, man. It's got will, a good name. I will say, and I'm a biased, gentlemen from my experience at Liberty working there. All three of our kids went there. Uh, my wife and I both got our graduate degrees from there as well. But, and I believe in Christian education, but I often say, why do we spend tens of thousands of dollars to send our kids and our grandkids to these schools that seek to change what our kids think? So you raise a kid for 18 or 19 yep. years trying you to bet. teach and train them with a biblical worldview, a conservative worldview in America, first patriotic worldview, and then we pay the left tens of thousands of dollars to see if our kid can be a Daniel, can be a Joseph, 
and stand alone and withstand that, and most kids aren't equipped to do that. Because yeah. we buy into what the world says, oh, you gotta send them to this prestigious <clears throat> school or that prestigious school, and so I believe very much in Christian education. Mm -hmm. Well, in our current position, shouldn't we be asking why this Congress should be sending money to those ed uh, educational institutions? Subsidizing them, subsidizing Absolutely. the explosion in costs. Absolutely, yeah. subsidizing socialism, That's right. Marxism. Subsidizing all these pro-Palestinian Hamas protesters that come from our colleges nearby and come and, you know, raise hell in their nation's capital with no respect whatsoever, you know, and it, with no respect of what's happening to people who are being kidnapped, murdered, raped um, in the Middle East. At, at Liberty University, you would have been subjected to a large number of evangelical conservatives also. I mean, it's a place where you've got people in, in high-level political positions who actually go and speak to the student body. They'll, they'll, you'll have some type of form or something, don't you, yeah. on a monthly basis, weekly basis, where, where um, the student body gathers? Actually, um, it's twice a week. Okay, what is that? We have and, what's called convocation, okay. uh, where, it's, uh, where, the, where the entire campus comes together and has a service of sorts, uh, of political leaders, business leaders, uh, Christian leaders, uh, uh, all kinds of individuals will come and speak. I've spoken at the convocation, as a matter of fact. Oh, wow. Um, but uh, it's, it's in the basketball arena, the 10,000-seat basketball yeah. arena, and it's full. It's a, an awesome experience to go to. It's a worship service that leads then to a, someone speaking. And again, often it's a, it's a pastor or an evangelist or a preacher, uh, but many times it's a business leader or a political leader. Uh, uh, it's ten, it tends to be a rite of passage, if you will, for leading presidential candidates to have to come yes. through Liberty yeah. and speak there. But uh, it's, it is an evangelical Christian school, but it is a conservative biblical worldview. But to give you an example, think about college campuses. It, I got 95% on the campus <laughs> in, on election day, 95%. That's probably the only polling place in the country where Republican gets 95%. How'd you get provoked into running? So there you are at Liberty, you're surrounded in a really tremendous environment. And what was it? What was the impetus? Was it, did somebody politically, um, through the activities that you have on campus, did you have an introduction to someone who now I talked ask, to you? Now I want to ask why you used the word provoked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Trapped, <laughs> coerced. Uh, Probably like you guys, I always had an interest in politics in terms of, I remember as a kid following presidential elections, the electoral college, you know, arguing in my school for candidates that I supported and always been an advocate and a contributor uh, to conservative candidates and causes. But I was 50 years old, eight years ago, when I had some friends and neighbors encourage and ask me to run for county supervisor because we had an open seat, we had a chance to flip what was a conservative county to a conservative board that reflected, you know, a lot of times local government does not reflect That's right. the conservative county makeup because we, right. we say, oh, you shouldn't be partisan on a local level. We're all independent on a local level, and that just means Democrats pretend to be in independents. Mm -hmm. But uh, so my wife and I resisted it because my job at Liberty, when you work on a college campus and when you work in athletics and when you work in fundraising, there's no spring yeah, break, you, fall break, Christmas break, Easter break, Thanksgiving. I mean, it's all the time. It's 24-7. And when you're a fundraiser, you guys know a little bit about that now at least. Right. Uh, but there's always more calls to make and more things to do. So uh, to take on something else part-time to be a county supervisor was pretty daunting. So I resisted, but my wife and I prayed about it. We were trying to find somebody else to do it, and we couldn't find someone to do it. So I finally decided to do it and serve four years. In 2019, I announced I'm not going to run again. I just didn't, I prayed about it. I just didn't have a piece about continuing to do it on top of my job. 
I felt like it you know, made it difficult to do either one of them as well as I wanted to. And then, so I announced in early 19, I'm not going to run for county supervisor again. And uh, a few months later, same thing kind of happens. I have friends and neighbors come and ask me to run for Congress because we had a brand new member of Congress who I won't name, but a brand, he, he, he was a Republican who'd been in office about six months at that time. And he was just a disaster. He was essentially pro-choice. He was um, he was uh, pro-drug legalization. He'd voted for FISA surveillance, and uh, he you know he'd voted against repealing Obamacare. And and then he got infamous because he he performed a gay wedding. He married two guys on his staff. And so Republicans again, he'd only been in office about six months. And Republicans finally had enough and said, okay, we need to primary this fella, and had some folks asked me to do that. And so uh, a few months later, quit my job at Liberty and, and, and ran. Wow. So you, now I want to I dive into some of the courageous moments that you've taken in office. But first, let's um, you segue into you and I serve on the Education um, Committee, the Workforce and Education Committee. And, and you, you've obviously been able to take some of your experience from working at Liberty and, and, and been able to provide that to the committee. Yeah, I'm on two committees and one of them's inconsequential because it's the budget committee. So we don't obviously we don't need a budget committee. We don't use that committee in Congress. <laughs> there's two of us on the budget. What is that? Yeah, we don't we don't need the budget. Turns out, you know, I thought that'd be pretty cool getting to be on the budget well, committee because yeah, you get to work on it's the budget. Okay because we yeah. don't have a debt commission. That's right. <laughs> That's where the commission. real work will be done. <laughs> right. But with my finance background, I want to be on the budget committee and having worked on a college campus, I wanted to be an education committee. Plus when I ran I had said I thought the three greatest threats to our country were the border invasion, which Trump largely had under control. So it was more a broken immigration system than just the border at that time. Now it's become about the border. Uh, but our spending and our national debt, and gosh, that's exploded during the three years that I've been there. We're much worse off than we were when I got there. I'm sorry to say, even though I voted against all of it. And then, but then the college, I mean, the education, the K to 12 indoctrination in our schools, as well as on our college campuses that we've already referenced. Um, so yeah, uh, being on a college campus kind of drove that home that I wanted to be on that committee. A lot of Republicans don't ask to be on that committee. The Dems love the Education and Workforce yeah. Committee, or they call it Ed and Labor when they have the majority. But Republicans tend not to like that committee. I I got recruited to that committee. Yeah, I have to admit. Yeah, uh, mostly because of the workforce side, the labor union stuff, mm -hmm. which I don't mind taking on labor unions. Exactly. But, um, I'm glad that you're on the committee. Um, so when you first got elected, let's talk about the fighter Bob Good, which I got to say. In knowing you, it's remarkable how when you're interpersonal, one-on-one, -on -one, you're, you're very subdued. He's nice, isn't he? He's very quiet. Yeah, you wouldn't think. Very calm, very <laughs> – but, the, but then there's another Bob Good, and that's the Bob Good who is speaking to conference, who's in, at, a, at, a, um, at a podium in front of a press conference. And that is – you turn it on. You have this talent that I actually – I'm envious of. Uh, you, where, where do where do you channel that from? Where, what do you what are you thinking when you when you t flip the switch and become? Well, I give I guess I would give a little bit of a complex answer on that, and I appreciate the, the kind words on that. But I'm I'm I am naturally or personally introverted, and professionally extroverted because just because I've always had jobs where there were people positions and and uh, sales persuasion type speaking type things. Uh, but I do believe the Lord wired me for battle. Uh, my flesh likes to confront <laughs> and to combat. Um, I, you know, the Bible talks about being peacemakers. You know, God doesn't say tell us we're to be peacekeepers; we're to be peacemakers. 
There's a big difference. Oh, wow. That's, That's the reason why the Colt 45 is nicknamed the peacemaker. You're making the peace. <laughs> and, you know, a peacekeeper, we've got a lot of peacekeepers up in, in the Republican conference, as you guys know, who just want to get along, go along to get along, have this phony unity. Let's pretend we all agree. And just no matter what happens, we just, we just stick, stay united. A peacemaker is confronting wrongdoing, uh, trying to make things right. Uh, and, and willing to confront and correct, and that brings conflict uh, oftentimes, as we know. Um, but uh, that's actually a weakness. A weakness for me is that sometimes I'll confront, I'm talking about in personal situations, confront when I shouldn't, or, you know, uh, there tends to be two kinds of people, those who are very conscientious, very thoughtful, very considerate, uh, but then they struggle to confront when you need to. And then there are those of us who always want to do that, and then don't always show the discretion or the discernment that we should. And so, honestly, to whatever degree, I don't do it as much in my personal life. That is, frankly, the Holy Spirit and the Lord working on the flesh of Bob, which is actually more of a confrontational person. That's amazing. But so some of the fights that you've been involved with from the beginning. So you came in during the COVID era, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think we were talking before the cameras were turned on that you 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 fought against Pelosi and her mask mandate um, during that time. Tell us about some of the fights early on. Well, that one there, when I started, I announced for Congress in uh, November of 19 formally, and of course, COVID hit us early 20, so during the, the beginning of the campaign. So all through that 2020 year when I was running, that's when the lockdowns and the shutdowns and the mandates and all those kind of things started to happen. And while I don't have any kind of a medical background, like you guys, I read a lot and I study a lot and I try to, uh, to, to get good information, but it never made sense to me the way that we were treating everybody the same, young people like senior citizens, you know, people with multiple comorbidity factors. We were treating college students like these folks who were at high risk. And, you know, viruses, there's no way to prevent people from getting a virus. We're going to get a virus. We're going to get exposed to a virus, I should say. And it never made sense to shut down schools and, uh, and colleges or to force vaccinations later on on young people or healthy people or to force a vaccination on anybody for that matter. Uh, the shutdowns didn't make any sense, closing businesses, the picking the winners and the losers. So all that to say, I spoke out on that very early in 20 on the campaign trail. We never wore masks at our events. We never stopped having events. We never did any silly social. Di- I'm a germaphobe anyway, so I mean I'm washing mm-hmm. my hands and I don't eat and drink after people. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't literally didn't change anything. But we spoke out against it aggressively and boldly. And time is a friend of truth. And time began to confirm that those who were suspicious and cynical and skeptical. And one of our colleagues, by the way, Andy Harris in the House Freedom Caucus, who I think is one of our most outstanding members. And he's just, I think he really frames issues. He's very smart. He's very thoughtful. And he can succinctly present things in a way that makes sense to even somebody like me. But I remember Andy, who's a physician, as you guys may know. But Andy saying a couple of years ago that, you know, science is, all of his medical experience and training said science is supposed to be debated, to be challenged, to be vetted, uh, to hold up to scrutiny. He said, but except under COVID, they as physicians, only one narrative, only one thought thought process, only one mindset was the acceptable, the norm, and everything else was shut down. Mm. Um, so anyway, I, and I actually got a, a lot of negative media attention for one time saying in a, in a, a speech at a Trump rally, uh, saying that this is a phony pandemic. You know, this is a, this, <laughs> and now technically it was a pandemic because it was widespread, but I meant it was phony in the sense that the way, and I 
Now, the quote went on to say, hey, it's a serious virus, but it's a phony pandemic. But what I meant was the way they're trying to f put fear in everyone's heart that we're all going to die from COVID. Heart. That we're all going to die from yeah. COVID, young people and children. And remember when they told kids they could stop wearing masks to school, and so many of them kept wearing the masks to school. Think oh, about the today, harm we did to children. There's still people wearing yeah. masks. The harm we did to children. today coming here that we're wearing masks. Yeah. I, I kind of, when I see those people, I want to, I just so badly want to say, what sign are you waiting for? Mm -hmm. You know, are you waiting for Fauci to say, you know, you could take the mask off? But, but it's just remarkable how many, fear really gripped people and caused people to make some crazy, crazy choices. Indeed. Okay, so you, the other fights that you've been involved with, um, have, have you been in the forefront of some of these fights with the changing the rules, getting the right speaker in place? What have been, what has been the most uh, difficult moment where you uh, that you've that you've uh, had to take a, take a difficult stand. Well, you know we're all gifted in different ways, and we have some really good members in the House Freedom Caucus. You know, we got some really smart members, and and I, I recognize a lot of members who are much smarter in the Freedom Caucus than I am. Many of them just are stronger on policy, and they're and they're stronger on the parliamentary procedures and how the House works and things like that. Uh, we got some really good members in our House uh, Freedom Caucus group, as you guys know. Uh, where I think my strength is um, is in the area of of just being bold and aggressive, often no wrong, doubt. often wrong, but never in doubt, that. as they say. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, I, I think God has helped me with you know the gift of persuasion and making a case. Um, but uh, but you know, I rely on a lot of the other guys in the team who are just smarter on the issues, and I'm, I'm just being transparent on that. You know, we, to recognize uh, you know. And any gift that we have is a gift from the Lord, and obviously we're all gifted in different ways. Um, but in terms of casting votes, I honestly would say there's only been two or three hard votes I've ever taken on the House floor. Usually we know what's right, and it just matter whether we, whether we want to do what's right. So there's, been a, there's only been a few where I really struggled and wrestled with what to decide and that were of any consequence. Um, but I, I guess... Where I've been most proud is when I often will say it doesn't matter what you believe if you're not willing to to uh, fight for what you believe or to take risk to fight for what you believe or to, or to suffer for it or to uh, sacrifice for it. And you know, I, I think back to the to the uh, the willingness to try to force change in the House with going through the Speaker battle and trying to. There was others who you know had the knowledge on how to get the right kind of rule changes and process changes who understood, you know, at that point, I'd only been in the house, you know, two years. And so there's a lot of other rooms have been there longer and just are stronger in that respect. Uh, but, but I will also say that, you know, going to the motion to vacate, um, you know, I went into that vote with a very heavy heart, uh, recognizing the gravity of it, um, the uncertainty of it, the risks involved with it, and that no one of us can determine the outcome of where that goes. Mm -hmm. But I knew with certainty that the current track, as it continues to be, is unsustainable. And how can we just let it happen on our watch and not be willing to do whatever it takes to try to make a difference and try to make a change? And so I knew we couldn't get there under the current speaker. But there was actually a sense of relief after that vote. And, really? uh, yeah, there was a sense of relief after the motion to vacate. So the uh, tension and the pressure built up yes. to that moment, and yeah. then when it was once done. we'd once we'd cast the vote and we didn't have a speaker, there was a sense of relief in it because there was hope then 
that you know we could we could we could we could select someone better that would give the ch country a fighting chance. Yeah, and I think that you you guys had the foresight to kind of see what I did thought was not possible, which is get someone that's more conservative, I, especially from this from our conference. Now they put to, they put forward people that were you know the the traditional what what Washington D.C. is used to seeing the next person in line right and then the next person on the ladder, yep. and uh, but this this outcome is something that I don't I could never have imagined. <clears throat> well, I think by comparison, there's certainly we're in a much better position. I believe Mike Johnson is a, a strong. Christian brother whose uh, his faith guides his life and it's the most important thing in his life and I had observed that for three years with him my first three years in Congress before he became speaker I think he's an honest guy I think he wants to do the right things I think he's a genuine conservative however there is tremendous pressure upon him to not do the right things and to to give in and to cave and surrender and with the promise that we'll do differently next time or tomorrow and he's got all kinds of the wrong people in his ear, like everybody does in that position. And so it's incumbent upon us to do everything we can to help him, persuade him, influence him, support him. He needs the conference behind him in doing the right things. And I fear that he that he is concerned that the conference won't back him and won't stand with him in the fight. Um, Was it you that actually, I think you actually said that. It, at one point you, you said, we wouldn't ha well, the reason why he's proposing this is because he knows that he that the conference won't stick with him on a shutdown in a shutdown fight. Mm -hmm. That's a sad commentary, but I think that is true that he recognizes that there's there's a significant portion of the conference that will not tolerate or suffer or stomach any kind of a shutdown fight. And if we won't back him there, you know, if 217 or 218 of us now, I guess, uh, won't back him there, then how can he win there? So here we are. We came back from the Thanksgiving break right after we, uh, they, not we, I think everyone here voted against the CRs, the CRs, the, to create these new continuing resolutions on into February. And uh, I was not happy about that outcome, but um, uh, now, we're, now we're back. And where do we, where, what, do you, what is your prediction as to, and what, what are your, what's your optimism or despair? as you see things going for the next couple months? Well, it's honestly hard to be optimistic, and that's the sad, sobering truth. Um, I think the hope for the country is there, and you guys are fellow warriors, and you guys have demonstrated this with things that you've done in your first year in Congress, and I'm proud to serve with you guys, all of you. And the hope for the country is there are some members of Congress who've been willing at an, unpre at an unprecedented <clears throat> level in modern times to vote against their own political interests, to vote against their own political futures, to risk everything politically to try to bring change. And I think the Republican conference and even the Democrats on the other side and even many members, even critical members of the media recognize that, that some of us are willing, even if it meant we were going to lose an election, to try to do what we thought was right to try to save the country. And it's hard to figure out that right strategy and that right balance and that right course of action all the time to do that. But that's the hope that, that I have. Uh, that said, um, you know, I think the, the recent continuing resolution that, as you said, Eric, that we all voted against was a mistake and it was a continuation of failures of the past. The speaker said he only do the one. He's not going to do anymore. 
Uh, he has said that he's going to fight to cut spending. He said he has said that he's going to fight to cut our spending bills, or to cut our to pass our spending bills, rather our remaining five bills. Uh, he has said that he's going to help us fight to secure the border, uh, and uh, and and so we've got to hold him to that, and that's the hope the American people has in us. The House is the only thing between them and the communist, radical, Marxist, leftist, anti-American agenda that is the White House and the Senate. Well, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I agree. I, 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 you guys can chime in, but I, I, I came up here. I've never been more disillusioned um, and, and, and disappointed with, until, I'm, until I joined the, the conference. And some of these conference meetings, you realized how, many, how few people are willing to be like a Bob Good and fight and actually stand on principle. I've been frustrated. When, when our entire discretionary spending, which you pointed out early uh, when we tripped the threshold this year, it was like 80% of our discretionary spending was borrowed money. I think this is the year that we encounter 100% of all of the monies that we're going to expend on 12 appropriation bills. Fighting to get to uh, appropriation bills after a decade that have not been voted on individually, but every dollar in these 12 appropriation bills is borrowed money, which means the almost $900 billion that defends our country. Eli, when you were a Navy SEAL, Keith, when, when you served Special Forces, 100% of the salaries, 100% of the military equipment we're purchasing this year is borrowed money. We have a $1.7 trillion, looking back last year, uh, deficit uh, or more. You keep saying, you know, north of $2.2 trillion, but I'm, I'm using the, you know, the CBO numbers. And our discretionary spending, our 12 appropriation sum total is about $1.7 trillion. And, and to kind of just make sure that the American people understand everything that you know of in your governance right now is borrowed money. I mean, mm -hmm. absent Medicare, absent Social Security, absent veteran benefits, absent uh, Medicaid, absent food stamps, which are locked away and all we can adjust is eligibility. Those are called mandatory. 100% of everything else, the 2,300 different government programs that go directly to individuals and cities and counties and, and states. By the way, it was, it was just half that number in 1980. 100% of what most people recognize as the federal government that, that touches their lives is borrowed money now. And that's, that's the cynicism that's, you know, that's provoking Eric's comment. And we all know. The American people don't know this, though. They know it's bad. They know we've got major debt, but they don't understand the, the, the level of, of servitude um, and the, 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 the theft of our kids. Indeed. Well, Why don't you say something positive, given how <laughs> upbeat that was? Well, let's look at, and I'm not going to call her name, <clears throat> but a liberal reporter has labeled the 118th Congress as revolutionary. So we are, really? yeah, we are going to make, continue to make change this year. Now, I know winners write history. If the establishment wins, we will be written yeah. in history as fools. Mm -hmm. But if we can change the trajectory of Washington, this Congress, next Congress, it's ours to fight. We've, I had my staff look at Patrick Henry's speech that you know the last from line. <laughs> from Virginia. <laughs> look at the, this is his give me liberty or give me death speech. It's a wonderful speech. I mean, the whole speech is absolutely wonderful but it's so relevant to today. He talks about you know, where they are, and um, we need to be prepared to continue to make change. We've got to be prepared, and we've got to bring more people along with facts like he's got. 
Josh has got to be, we've got to get that out to our conference because we have got to be positive guys. We have got to say we are making yeah. change. We are changing the trajectory of Washington. And, we can't just say we're being rebels. And courage can be courage, can, contagious. Absolutely. Right? No question. I know I see some of the things you guys have done. And I, as, admittedly, as moments that we've had this last year, I thought, like, I was an investment advisor. I, my job is to manage risk. To avoid it, right? To yeah. avoid risk <laughs> and, to, and, to, and to, or calculate the, the best outcome, right? Mm -hmm. And so there was often times where I thought, boy, the, the, other, the other side of this is for me, I, I, you know, it wasn't worth the calculation. But I really admired the fight that you guys sometimes would take on. And, um, and, and yeah, that I, I, I really, but I, and I say that to say, Courage is contagious. It is. Well, just look. We had 13 freshmen that signed a letter on day one. We had 20 that stood against the speaker for the rules. We had 29 that voted against the rule for the uh, debt ceiling bill. And it's grown to now 90 voted against the last CR, right? What you're saying, Eric, is right. We just need to continue. Well, and their voters, the other Republicans' voters, let them know if they don't vote the way we do. Meaning they hear from their constituents at home, the other Republicans mm -hmm. in the conference, hey, why don't you vote more like these guys? Why don't you join the fight that these guys are in? That's where the Freedom Caucus has, yes. has developed a very strong brand um, living up to the standard of, if you look at, up the voting record for most of them in the Freedom Caucus, that you will see scorecard after scorecard that's reflective of they're serious about making government uh, be lean. Um, but I, and, I think ahead. I think it's moving in our direction too. Look at the New Yorkers, the freshman New Yorkers. They're getting crushed in social media over the border. So the issues are becoming so serious mm -hmm. that I think we're going to get we're going to get some help in that manner as well. Uh, Rasmussen is a constituent of mine. Okay, so he just did a poll, and apparently uh, his poll, and that's a legitimate poll. That's not some mm -hmm. rag poll. A legitimate poll, there he's got thirty percent of the Democrats in that poll said, "Yeah, they would consider voting for, for Trump." Uh, I mean, it's it's some of the numbers are incredible right now, and I know it's a long time mm -hmm. to, to the election; it's it's an eternity. But still, the numbers are are moving. So, just talking about optimism because it is easy to get in the numbers and and be dismal. My team often says to me because I do a lot of town halls, you know, land on a positive note. Uh, I think for all of us, knowing each of you individually, our, our hope is not in government. We actually believe on our money where it says in God we trust. And so our hope is in a much higher place than government. government. Um, but I'm excited about the potential. Um, I think all of us can look and see that it looks very promising that, that Trump is going to be the, the nominee. And uh, believing that he would come in with gusto. Uh, and fight uh, the bureaucracy that's so embedded that he would um, take what Argentina is showing right now. Have you all saw what, what's happening oh, yeah. in Argentina right now? Walk into the, have you seen this, Bob? Mm. Argentina yeah. just elected this libertarian oh, yeah. who is walking in and he's mm -hmm. talking about if it's not for national defense, if it's not for police, and then it's, he's not even, he's not even talking about infrastructure, man. He's talking about if it's not for police, courts, and um, uh, defense, yeah, it's out. It. And he, he actually has visuals. He's going in, grabbing things off. I the saw it. Chalkboard saying, ministry, ministry of so-and-so. You're abuelo. out. What, what's the word he's using? I think he's saying abuelo. <laughs> Which my Spanish is not that good. Right? I, it's not that good. I might be corrected here okay. quickly. 
Well, but but, but yeah, uh, he's like throwing yeah, all these I mean, apartments so out. We're at the point now when we talk about these numbers financially. Can you imagine if if Trump was to come back in a second term and be that provoked that we actually start okay. amputating instead of scalpel, you know, fiddling around like you constantly talk about in those budget negotiations? We're just playing around with the edges here. Can you imagine if we could actually get serious about amputating uh, the gangrene of, of bureaucracy that's so unconstitutional, getting rid of agencies, entire agencies that we know should not be unto the Fed, but unto the state or the people? Just got to have the stomach to do what needs to be done. Yeah. That's interesting because while Bob was talking, I was getting pretty depressed. <laughs> and then, and then and so, Keith, Keith, when you jumped in, man, I started getting a little, a little optimistic, you know? That was that was awesome. I don't know where you found this guy, but you need to bring him back. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, well you know, I know. he's an every week guy. I'm, I'm, I'm a one timer. <laughs> that, that's right. Well, as Christians, we might not even air this episode. I mean, <laughs> yeah, nobody nobody watches it anyway. I, I <laughs> Bob's just like me. He's like the the trail of tears. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bob, thanks for being on. I know that I know that uh, Donald Trump. Loves Bob Good. He probably wants Bob great. <laughs> but we but we love Bob Good. We we want to say thank you for coming on the show and really appreciate yes. your courage. Really appreciate your fight. And I, I really love your speeches. Yeah. Well, thank you. He guys. hardly thanks. ever gives them, but yeah. when he does. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks and, for having me, guys. And thank you for joining us. We'll see you the next time on the Fresh Freedom Podcast. Yeah.